Good morning, and good morning to the rest of you. <laughs> First of all, I want to thank the uh, <clears throat> the young um, people who, young adults who went and uh, delivered flowers and love notices to those who uh, needed them yesterday. It was uh, greatly appreciated by all, and uh, it was very heartfelt. And uh, you brought many tears to uh, many eyes. Good ones. Good tears. All right. We are continuing our study in Second Thessalonians. We are in chapter 2. Last week we took up the uh, first two verses. And I left you hanging on one word. And I'll uh, start with chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll read through the chapter uh, to verse 12. And then we'll uh, take it up verse by verse as we go today. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, or better, the day of the Lord, had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, Unless, and then I paused, and that's where we ended last week. And so what we are going to look at today is, let's answer the unless question today. So verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so Paul begins this chapter, as we noted last week, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we emphasized last week that this is the second coming of Christ, or that's um, the first coming, of course, was when Jesus came as a baby to Bethlehem. That was his first coming. He came with the purpose of uh, living his life out, dying on the cross for our salvation, and the gospel message goes out today to whoever believes, uh, will, whoever believes in him, has everlasting life. That is the gospel message that we preach. So that had to do with his first coming. But he's coming again. When Jesus left the earth, 
he said to his disciples that if he goes, he will come again to receive them to himself, that where he is, they may be also. So last week we pointed out that the second coming of Christ actually has two phases or two parts to it. The first part of his second coming is his coming to the clouds or to the air to gather to himself all of his church. And so those who were part of the church who believed in him and died will be resurrected and raised up to be with the Lord in the air. And if we are alive at the moment that he comes, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that should comfort our hearts. That's what's coming next for believers. That's the only thing we're looking for. We're not looking for signs. We're not looking for, you know, events. What we're looking for is one thing, one person, Jesus Christ. We are looking for him. And so that the first phase of his second coming is called the rapture. And, and Paul taught about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, so we we talked about the two phases of his second coming. The first phase, he comes to the air For his saints. The second phase, which takes place seven years later, is his coming to the earth with his saints. Okay, that's really what we're going to be looking at. Um, The the time frame in between is what we're going to look at this morning. So Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers. And the question that they had is that they had received some kind of a letter, some kind of teaching from somewhere Um, where people were telling them, look, Jesus Christ uh, is coming, that's true, but you're in the middle of the tribulation right now because they were going through tremendous persecution. And they, they began to question, well, maybe we are in the tribulation. And so I mentioned to you last week that although as Christians we may go through tribulations in life, it is not the tribulation, okay? Very different. And the tribulation or the great tribulation is what Paul wants to talk about here. And there are three ways that um, we know that we are not in the tribulation. And Paul gives them here in this passage. The first is that apostasy must come first. Secondly, the man of sin must be revealed. And third, the restrainer must be taken out of the way. So we're going to look at all three of these one at a time and see what they mean. Paul, <coughs> excuse me, Paul writes, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away. The falling away is from the Greek word apostasia. That's where we get our word apostasy from. And apostasy simply means to renounce or to forsake the truth. It means to defect or depart or revolt or rebel. You can use any of those words, and that's what it means. It's basically saying, look, I have stated 
that I believe the truth. A person who, who is a, we'll call him a Christian apostate, is somebody who professes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, professes to have come to know him as their Savior, but at some point in their life, they renounce him as God, they turn their back on him, and they consider the blood of Jesus Christ to be of no effect. That is an apostate. But you will find that an apostate is, is not content with simply turning his back on the Lord and going the other way. He wants to promote his newfound theology. And um, an apostate is somebody, as I say, who claims to have believed the truth and has rebelled against it. I've known people like this. I have had personal confrontation with people like this. There was a man in this area here in the Bay Area uh, some years ago who was He actually taught and preached in the area in churches, and um, he was well accepted among the believers. But there came a time in his life when he made a statement, and I caught the statement. I was preaching at a uh, at a um, a church, and I caught a statement. He actually interrupted my message, and he says, "Can you tell me what you mean by what you just said?" And I just finished saying that Jesus Christ is God, and I said, "I'd be happy to answer your question." In the middle of the message. And he said, can you please explain what you just said? And so I explained it again. He says, huh, that's what I thought you meant. It turned out I had a a talk with him afterward, um, some weeks afterward, because he left immediately after that meeting. And I had a talk with him afterward. And I, I said to him, his name was Alan. I said, Alan, I want to know something. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And he gave me kind of a slippery answer. It wasn't. Uh, it was clear to me that he was trying to evade the question. And I said, Alan, you haven't answered my question. I want to know from you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And he threw his arms up in the air and he screamed. I mean, he literally screamed and went running down the street with his arms flailing like this. He says, no, he is not God. The man is, was an apostate. He had turned from the faith and he had he had forsaken the truth that he said at one time he had believed, and he was not content to just hold this as a personal view himself, but he began to write articles, print articles, distribute literature all over the place, denying the deity of Christ. He's an apostate. And so Paul is talking here to the, to the um, Thessalonian church, and uh, he is saying to them, that the falling away must come first. Apostasy must come first. And you say, okay, well, where does this fit in the timeline? Is this before the rapture? Is this immediately following the rapture? Where does it fit? So Paul has already described to them the rapture. He's saying, okay, look, as far as the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him, that's done. Immediately following the rapture, the apostasy will occur. So you say, well, hasn't there been apostasy down through the centuries? And the answer, of course, is yes. One of the most famous apostates ever is Judas Iscariot. He walked with Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He turned his back on Jesus and and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. He was an apostate. The Bible teaches us, uh, many people believe that Hymenaeus and Alexander became apostates. They're found in the New Testament. 
Demas, who um, forsook Paul, probably was an apostate. Interestingly enough, it says in the scripture that that after he left Paul, he went to Thessalonica. So it's interesting to me that Demas may have come from this church originally and then later returned to that area. Peter writes about apostates in 2 Peter 2. He says this, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In the book of Revelation, there's a striking contrast between um, two churches. If you know the book of Revelation, you will know that in the first few chapters of the book, the, the Lord himself, Jesus, is walking among the churches and he is speaking to them and he's calling them to he's, he's praising them for the, the things that they're doing right. And then he's calling them to repent of things that are lacking. And the last two churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation um, are the church of Philadelphia and the church of the Laodiceans. I believe both churches will exist right up until the coming of the Lord. And I believe historically that that if you look at the, the history of those churches as they're spelled out in the book of Revelation, you can see similarities in the um, events of the church age down through the centuries from the, from the time Jesus left the earth until the present day. But I believe both of those churches will be present at the end times. And here's why. I want to read you something about the Philadelphian church. Jesus says in Revelation 3.8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. There are churches today who are like this Philadelphian church. They are churches of love, brotherly love. They have a passion for souls. They send the gospel out to the world. They support missionary endeavors. They try to get the gospel out as widely as they can because they have a compassion and a love for people who don't yet know Christ. And so very similar uh, to this church spelled out in Revelation. But he says this, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Based on the wording there, I believe that church will also be part of the last day's church. And so coexisting with it is another church, and it's the church of the Laodiceans. We often say of the church of the Laodiceans, that's the last day's church. It's the church of our age. It's a church that is caught up with the world and the things of the world. It's a church that says, I am rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing. And uh, the Lord speaks to that church as well. He says in Revelation 3.15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you 
out of my mouth. Very strong words. We have a chef in our audience today, and you know something about presenting food and drink in a cold or hot way. You don't want it lukewarm. People will spit it out. It's not good. And so the Lord is saying that of the church here in the Laodicean church. And he is saying, look, I wish you were cold or hot. Make a decision. Are you going to follow me or not? Are you going to follow hard after me and be hissing hot for the Lord? Or are you going to just let your love grow cold? And the interesting thing is that of this church, it says Jesus is actually outside of the church knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him. He's talking about gaining entrance to his own church. When we speak of these two churches, I want to say this. The Laodicean church, probably more than any other church, is like what we see today. There are many churches today, many denominations today, many cults today who all claim that they are following Christ. And if you take them all together in one great big scoop, what you have is the professing church. In that great big circle or that big scoop, you have some who are true believers like the Philadelphian church. But the bigger scoop or the bigger circle is the uh, is the Laodicean church. It's made up of those who truly are saved and those who truly are not saved. And uh, that's what we have in these last days. There are many today who profess to know Christ, but they are apostates. Um, they have denied the faith. The scripture tells us that there will come a time when these conditions will be seen in the professing church. I want to give you some of the conditions that we will see in the end times. First of all, in Luke 17, 26, there will be no fear of God or of the judgment to come. In Luke 17, it says, Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man returns. Why? Men will be eating and drinking and having parties and laughing and getting married and all the regular things, but they'll not be at all concerned about judgment that is about to befall this planet. The second thing is that we will see more and more of this. They will deny Christ. First John 2.18 says this, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Look around. There are many cults that proclaim that they are followers of Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints is a cult. It denies the deity of Christ. Um, it says that you can become gods. The, the, uh, so the Mormon Church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and many other of the cults who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, but clearly they are not. They deny the basic tenets or the basic fundamentals of the faith. And they are not um, followers of Christ. They're denying Christ. They are opposed. That's what anti means. Antichrist. Opposed to Christ. Third thing we will see <clears throat> as scoffers, they will actually deny the second coming of Christ. 
Um, we, we talked a little bit about that last week, how there are people today who are proclaiming Christ has already come. He came in A.D. 70. He's not coming back again. He will never set foot on the earth again. They're denying Christ. They're denying his second coming. Fourth, they will depart from the faith. In 1 Timothy 4, it says this, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Next, they will reject sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, it says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Finally, it is a generation, and we are living in this generation today, I believe, that is described this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to point out something as I read this. What I'm about to read could always be said of the world, always. But it can now be said of the professing church. Listen carefully. But I know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. And this is the point that I'm saying. Paul is talking here about the professing church, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people... Turn away. And so it seems that there has always been some measure of um, apostasy in the professing church. And the scripture is plain enough about that, that there will be a marked increase of that as we approach the last days or the end of the church age. But that's not what Paul's talking about in Second Thessalonians. What Paul is talking about in Second Thessalonians is something that is unprecedented in history. And it is going to follow the immediately follow the rapture. And it is at a time when the true church and the true church is made up only of believers. And as the believers are raptured up to heaven and taken off the scene, there will be no believers left. Okay, I can't stress that enough. There are no believers left on earth. And so those who professed faith in Christ, who were part of the church, let's just take, for example, that the rapture takes place on Saturday night. Sunday morning, there will be churches that are just as full on Sunday morning as they were the week before, even though the true church has been taken. Because there are many people who fill churches today who do not know Christ. They do not know Jesus Christ. They have never been saved, and they do not. They deny uh, that uh, his his blood alone can save them. And so this is unprecedented. It has never happened before. 
Um, the, the, the point of, of it is this. It's not that these people have not heard the gospel. It's that they have heard the gospel and they have rejected it. They have not believed the truth. And so the Lord uh, does not save somebody who does not believe in him. And so these people are left behind. And what will happen, as I say, is unprecedented. There is coming a day when there will be widespread abandonment of the Christian faith. And that day happens right after the rapture. And the, the professing church that is left is filled with unbelievers. The person or people who, who fill the pulpit the next Sunday morning are unbelievers preaching untruth. Okay? And they are deceiving those who are in their midst. But there's more. It seems that in the context of this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, there will be um, unprecedented apostasy connected with a particular person, and that is the Antichrist. The Bible says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work. But it will come to fruition uh, and it will not come to full fruition, actually, until the Antichrist is revealed. And in particular, when he commits what is known in the scripture as the abomination of desolation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So it really brings us to our next point. The Thessalonians and we cannot be in the tribulation because it begins when the man of sin is revealed. That's the next point. The man of sin is revealed. Paul says in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Well, who is he? Who is this guy? He will be a great leader, uh, a world leader. And I want to tell you something. He actually may be alive as we speak. He may be alive presently on the earth. I don't know. I do know this, that the rapture could occur at any time and that this guy is going to be revealed immediately following the rapture. And so if the Lord is to come today, this guy is already living and he's probably in some political position already. We just don't know it yet. I do know that when the Lord comes, um, there will be an immediately um, an immediate revelation of who this guy is. Now he won't be, uh, we won't see his full revelation until the midway point of the tribulation, but he will be revealed very very quickly. So who is it? Can you think of a political leader right now who it might be? Don't speculate, because you'll be wrong, just like everybody else who has speculated on who it is. Uh, before you was wrong. He is called here in the scripture, the man of sin. He places himself above the law. He will be a smooth talking, charismatic person who is the embodiment of sin. And he is headed for eternal judgment. That is why he is called the son of perdition. Perdition would be destruction. Uh, where he will be uh, cast into the lake of fire. Again, more of that in a minute. Well, what do we know about him from the scripture? There is a prophet named Daniel in the Old Testament. And Daniel had a vision. He had a dream. And the Lord 
gave Daniel insight and a prediction of what was going to take place from his time all the way through to the end of times. And if you've never read the book of Daniel, I highly recommend it to you. It is a fascinating book. It is a book that as you read it, you could say, wow, he must have written this as history after it happened. But he didn't. He wrote it before it happened. It is with such accuracy, with such detail, that only God could have revealed it to him. He has been right on every point up to the present time. I have no doubt what he says about the future is also going to take place. The Lord gave him a vision. We don't have time to go over it all today, but I'm going to just condense it for you. In his dream, there were four world kingdoms depicted as wild beasts. And the dream was about future kings and kingdoms. The first kingdom was Babylon. The next kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire. Then it was followed by Alexander the Great and his conquests and the Grecian kingdom. And the Grecian kingdom was overthrown by the fourth kingdom, which was the Roman Empire. Uh, the fiercest of the beasts in Daniel's dream and his prophecy. And it was that kingdom, the Roman Empire, that was in power at the time Jesus Christ was on earth. And it was in that kingdom that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. He was nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers. But it was my sins who put him there. And it was your sins who put him there. The four kingdoms are also described as a statue of a man. The Roman Empire in this statue are the two legs of a man. And the interesting thing about the legs in the description is that they are made of iron and clay. And you think about the two, the combination, they don't mix very well. And iron is, speaks of the strength and the stability of the Roman Empire, the fierceness of it. And clay speaks of weakness. And the, the Roman government was fierce and it was strong militarily, but it was weak morally. And it crumbled upon itself. It, it basically self-destructed. But it's interesting to note, as the, as the uh, prophecy goes on, it seems that, as you look at that same picture, that statue has ten toes. And those ten toes, we learn from the scripture, represent ten kings that are to come. And so, if they are to come, that means that the Roman Empire has to be revived. It's interesting that as you look at the four kingdoms, they were all conquered. So the Babylonian kingdom was conquered. The Medo-Persian kingdom was conquered. Alexander the Great was ultimately, his kingdom was conquered by the Romans. But the Roman Empire was never conquered. It just fell apart. But it's going to be revived again in the end days. And those ten toes represent from the scripture ten kings who will rise up in the last days to form a revived Roman Empire. It is that kingdom that is in power during the tribulation period. And that could happen overnight. Okay? We have seen events even in our short lives where kingdoms rise and fall very rapidly. 
And so this also uh, will happen very rapidly after the rapture takes place. It could actually be brought together before that. There's nothing to stop it, but um, it will definitely be the kingdom that is in power at that time. We know that it's uh, that that kingdom will be in power because the scripture teaches us that God will destroy that kingdom and set up his own kingdom on the earth and he will reign uh, and that kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, the king, that same kingdom, that revived Roman Empire, is also described in another prophecy in Daniel, and it is described as a beast. And this beast has ten horns protruding from its head, kind of a grotesque-looking thing. But each of the ten horns also represent ten kings in a united kingdom of Europe. I mean, if you look at the old Roman Empire, it basically took up most of Europe. And if you think of it being revived, that's where it's going to be, a revived Europe or a revived Roman Empire. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, that we read this. Daniel's saying this, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. So if the horns represent kings, there's a little king, somebody who's not known yet, who rises up among the other kings, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. If a king is plucking out another king's kingdom, what is he doing? He's conquering. And so he conquers three of the kingdoms and sets himself up as king over all of that. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so we are introduced in this prophecy to a character, a new character. And he is um, a king who has small beginnings from the revived Roman Empire. He overthrows ten other rulers. Um, I'm sorry, three of the ten rulers. And he speaks pompous words. What, is, what does that mean, pompous words? It means blasphemy. It's speaking out against God. It is speaking words uh, to defy God is really what it is. Pompous, blasphemous words we will discover that this person is actually the Antichrist. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, John said. Here's where he is. From Daniel's prophecy, we know that the Antichrist will be greater than the other kings. We also learn that he will actually not just destroy those three other kings, but he will gain worldwide dominance. He will become so powerful that the world follows him. He will persecute the tribulation saints for three and a half years. We believe that the, the um, Antichrist will actually be a Gentile ruler. And there's a lot of reasons I say that, but I'll give you one. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 says this. Listen carefully. And the people of the prince who is to come. So the prince who is to come is speaking of the Antichrist. The people of that prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people who destroyed the city, it's Daniel's city, which would be Jerusalem, and Daniel's uh, 
the temple of Daniel's day, the sanctuary, they were the Romans. The Romans were the ones who destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. And this um, person, the Antichrist, is from the people who did, who did that. So he will be a Roman. He will be a Gentile coming from that line of people. We also read that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with Israel for seven years. And so based on that, we realize that his rise to prominence is almost immediate after the, um, uh, after the rapture takes place. And he enters into a peace treaty. The idea is that he comes along and he sees the conflict in the Middle East. Are we not hearing about it today? Okay, when has there not been conflict in the Middle East? And nobody seems to be able to bring peace to the Middle East. But this guy does. And he brings peace to this land that is so torn apart. And he, he signs an agreement and everybody signs the agreement together. This peace pact, this peace treaty. Finally, there's peace in the Middle East and it's going to last for seven years. But in the middle of that seven year period, he breaks the peace. And here's how he does it. Well, let's let's look at it first in Second uh, Thessalonians two, nine and ten. Um, actually, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So let me do let me before I do that, let's, let's go back and look at something else here. If we put together what the scriptures teach us about the Antichrist, this is what we know. He must be alive at the time of the rapture. He will not be recognized as the Antichrist immediately. As I mentioned, he may be alive at this present time as a political leader, probably somewhere in Europe. And once he is, once the rapture takes place, um, the restrainer is taken out of the way. So this is the third question. We're going to answer that third question in just a minute. The restrainer. Who is the restrainer? Or what is the restrainer? And the fact of him being taken out of the way, what does this have to do with the Antichrist? We're going to talk about that in just a sec. Once the rapture takes place, the restrainer is taken out of the way, this political leader rises to prominence. Um, when he sets up this peace treaty, it's going to happen with extreme speed, and it's going to be clear that it's supernatural. So he's going to do a lot of things that are supernatural, a lot of things that people are going to be blown away by. They're going to watch him and go, wow, this is this has got to be of God, right? It's supernatural. Let me warn you about something. Just because something is supernatural, it does not mean it's of God. Okay? There are many things that take place even on earth today that are supernatural, and they are clearly not of God. Okay? There are... Uh, we can go into a lot of detail on that, but just know that know that that just because it's supernatural, it does not mean that it is of God. Satan has tremendous powers. And it says that Satan gives the Antichrist his power, his throne and great authority. And in return, this guy worships Satan. And this is the great apostasy. And it takes place right after the rapture uh, takes place. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the world enters into a time that is known as the Great Tribulation. 
the beginning of the last three and a half years of the tribulation period is marked by a single event known as the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate. In verse four, we read this. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He is unequaled in his blasphemy. Never before have we seen a person so blasphemous that he enters into the temple of God, sets himself up as God, Sitting on the throne, he sets up also, we read later in scripture, he sets up a statue of himself and he's able to animate this statue as if it's alive and to speak blasphemous words against the living and true God and cause the people of the world to worship him. Never before have we seen such a uh, blasphemy. In verses 9 and 10, we read this. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Satan gives the Antichrist powers, signs, lying wonders. Has he ever done that before to anybody? Yes, he has. You think of the magicians during the time of, of um, Moses going to the Pharaoh and asking, demanding that the, that the Israelites be released and be able to go out into the wilderness. And he performed miracles proving that he was a spokesman of God. And the Egyptian magicians mimicked him. They were given power to do up to a certain point. God will give the people of the earth exactly what they want. A famous person once said, and I say this for Jake's sake, those who do not believe the truth are bound to fall for a lie. I want to emphasize that. Those who do not believe the truth are bound to fall for a lie. And that's exactly what happens on the earth at this time. Revelation 13.8 says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Well, I want to move to Paul's third reason why we are not in the tribulation, and that is found in verse seven. The restrainer is taken out of the way. Something or someone is restraining the powers of hell from breaking loose on the earth at the present time. There is a restrainer. But who or what is the restrainer? So in um, verse 6, the restrainer is spoken of in an impersonal way. It says, what is restraining? But in verse 7, the restrainer is spoken of as he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What is the identity of the restrainer? Many people over the years have come up with some very interesting and uh, bizarre, I would say, uh, views of who the restrainer is. But just to summarize it, I will say this. The restrainer is the one who has always restrained, and that is the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 says this. 
And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. This is spoken of at the time of the flood. And the Lord is saying that he was going to destroy the world with a flood. In Isaiah 59, 19, it says this. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The spirit of God is restraining the unleashing of evil that Satan wants to pour out upon the earth. And if Satan had his way, he would be doing it right now. But the Holy Spirit of God is resisting, restraining, keeping him back from the full uh, evil that he intends to do. But it is also true that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in every believer in the church. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that we are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. We are in some ways preserving the, the world from, from total chaos and corruption to some extent. Less and less as the days uh, draw nigh, or the day draws nigh. We are the light of the world. Light extinguishes darkness. And so when the, when the Lord comes back to the air and the church is raptured home to heaven, all of the believers are gone. And the Holy Spirit of God gently moves out of the way. It's not that he is not omnipresent. He's still on the earth. He's still convicting of sin. He's still doing the things that he did, has always done. But he is now hands off. He's pulling back and allowing Satan to have free course, free reign. You say, really? Why? Well, think about something back in Job's day. When the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? How he honors, he worships me, he does all of these things. And Satan goes, yeah, of course he does. You're treating him so well. Why wouldn't he love you? Why wouldn't he care for you? Why wouldn't he do these things? And the Lord allowed Satan a limited window, a limited measure of uh, trials that he could pour out upon Job. But he stepped out of the way to let him have his way with Job. And Job was, he lost everything in one day. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is going to, in a greater way, release Satan, allow him to to do his evil on the earth. And that will take place during the tribulation period. But he will still be at work uh, convicting of sin. Don't think for a minute that God has somehow lost control. God is still very much in control. It says, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. When you read that verse, it almost sounds like, okay, the Antichrist is revealed and he's destroyed. It sounds like it happens altogether. This is one of those verses in the scripture, like we're going over in um, here's the difference class that you have to be able to see that there's a time period right after that comma, right? The lawless one will be revealed, comma, seven years, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. The Lord will do that at the end of the tribulation period. 
Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, just as the Egyptian um, uh, magicians mimic some of the miracles done by Moses, so these, uh, so the lawless one will also deceive with satanic power. Verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Who's being deceived? Those who are being deceived are those who are in the tribulation period. Those who did not believe the gospel before the rapture. Those who are in the tribulation period because they refused to believe the gospel. And this is how important it is today. The the Bible says this. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to get your life right with God. Because if the Lord comes Today, at the end of today, you will not have a second chance. You've heard the gospel. And if you haven't, it's very plain and very simple. And I want to say it to you again. Jesus Christ loves you. And he died on the cross for your sins. He paid your sins penalty that you might have your sins forgiven. That your sins might be washed away. And that you might have a home in heaven with him. And if you believe the gospel, that Jesus died for you, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, the Bible says very plainly, you shall be saved. If you reject that and you say, well, I don't love that truth. I don't love that truth. And you reject that and Jesus Christ raptures his church today. You will not have a second chance. The Bible says very plainly in this passage They, um, uh, let me go back to it. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this reason, because they refuse to believe the gospel, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. As I said earlier, those who do not believe the truth are bound to believe a lie. That's what's going to happen. The Bible is very clear about that. When a person does not believe the truth, do you know what they're saying to God? God, you're a liar. I don't believe it. You're a liar. What's left is not some other truth. There is no other truth. There is one truth, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it says, and they shall all be uh, condemned, verse 12, they shall all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There was a time in the world's history when a warning was issued by God that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. And there was a preacher at that time, and his name was Noah. The Bible tells us he he was a preacher of righteousness. And Noah warned his generation that a flood was going to come. But he also gave them hope. And he said, basically, that if they would come into the ark through the one door of the ark that was open, that they could be saved or delivered from the flood to come. The ark had one door. There was only one way in, only one way to safety. 
And you know what happened to that generation, to the people of the earth of that day? They did not love the truth. They did not believe the truth. And they showed that they did not believe the truth by the way that they just carried on with normal day-to-day activities, day after day, just doing the same old thing, not concerned about the judgment that was about to befall them. And it says that they did this right up until the day that it began to rain. They bought, they sold, they married, they went on with life right up until the time the rains came. Those who do not believe the truth are bound to fall for a lie. And on the day when the flood came, it was too late and the world perished, except those eight people who were in the ark. Today, I am a preacher of righteousness. And so are you, if you know the Lord and you're commanded, called upon to preach the gospel, to tell the good news to your friends, to your family, to your co-workers, to your schoolmates, to those who you know. And our love for you compels us to tell you the truth. There is an ark of safety for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is an ark of safety. And just like there's only one way into safety of the ark, so there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Again, I repeat the verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those who do not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved, clearly the Bible says here they will perish. If they enter into the tribulation after hearing this gospel message, they will fall for the greatest lie that has ever been told to mankind. And they will perish. Those who do not believe the truth are bound to fall. For a lie. And on that day when the Lord comes to take his church home to be with him, it will be too late for those who are left behind. They will not believe. They will believe a lie. The Bible is very plain. Again, I say to you, today is the day of salvation. And I urge you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, come to him today and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth that is in your word, the fact that you have told us these things so plainly that we cannot mistake them. Lord, I cry out to you for those who still don't know you, those who still have not bowed the knee, that today would be the day of their salvation, that you might save them, preserve them from the wrath to come, that they might have their sins forgiven, washed away, that they might be forgotten in the sea of God's forgetfulness, that they might be put away as far as the east is from the west, and that their sins and iniquities you will remember no more. Thank you for your promises, Lord, and we pray that all who hear this message would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Our time has gone over, so that will conclude the message for today.